It has been said that biblical characters are not given to us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. That when you and I appear into the page of the Bible, that scripture acts like a mirror, and it reflects who we are. The biblical characters do not necessarily tell us how we ought to live, but they do reflect how we actually live. So that many times when we look into the pages of scripture, we find people that resemble you and resemble me. Sometimes that can be quite affirming. Many times that is most alarming. This morning I want to tell you a story, and I promise you that you are in this story. Today we continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. We find ourselves in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. It's to that passage I invite you to turn your attention. And once you've found that place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 19, I'll begin reading at verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and he returned home. Then he sent his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. The master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in. You reap where you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him, give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. The master replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine, who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God, you may be seated. Our passage begins by telling us that when they were listening to this, that implies a question, doesn't it? What is the this that they were listening to? The answer to that is found in the previous passage of the dramatic conversion experience of that wee little man named Zacchaeus. When the gospel got hold of Zacchaeus, it changed him from the inside out, top to bottom. Zacchaeus stood and said, look, Lord, here and now I'll give half my possession to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. 
And Jesus must have said with a smile on his face, salvation has come to this house, for this man too is a son of Abraham. And then Jesus gives what could be called the mission statement or purpose statement of the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, well, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke writes his gospel to answer two primary questions. Number one, who is Jesus? Number two, why did he come? The answer to both those questions is, is found in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Who is Jesus? He is the one and only Son of Man. And why did he come? He came to seek and to save the lost. I'm convinced that Jesus spent the 17-mile journey from Jericho to Jerusalem unpacking the meaning of that statement. As Jesus made his way to Jerusalem, he talked about his salvific purpose. He is the Son of Man, and he came to bring salvation to lost humanity. People just like Zacchaeus. You know that Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem for quite some time. Even as early as Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says that as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He knew that he was on a crash collision course with Calvary. He knew that the last week of his life was right at hand. He was making his final trip from Jericho to Jerusalem. He was about to enter what you and I call Passion Week when he would go and be confronted by the cross of Calvary. And as he makes his way, he talks about why he came. For he came to seek and save that which is lost. As he walked, the crowd grew louder and larger. There was an energy that pulsated in the crowd. It was like Jesus was a rock star. And all of his frenzied followers were behind him. Everybody knew that Jesus was on his way. He was making his way to the holy city of Jerusalem. There was a belief in Jewish thought that when Messiah comes, he will ultimately and immediately and forcibly overthrow the Roman rule. Luke says that Jesus told them this parable because they were near Jerusalem. And everybody in the crowd thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. That word that's translated appear at once is a nautical term. It's a a word that describes sailors in the first century as they were uh, on the seas. They would look out for the horizon. They would look for their destination in the distance. And all of a sudden, it would appear at once. It would show up out of nowhere. And they would tell everyone, that's where we're going. And this crowd was in a frenzy. They thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. They were certain that as soon as they stepped up over those Mount of Olives, that somehow Jesus would bring down the cosmic uh, uh, empire. He would bring down the heavenly fortress. He would bring down angels from heaven and they would come down like in some Hollywood picture movie theater and they would come down and destroy the Roman rule over Israel. Oh, there was an excitement in the air. They were certain that Jesus was that military Messiah. He was going to come and overthrow Israel's uh, Roman rule. Now it's true that Jesus is about to usher in the kingdom of God but he's not going to do it in a military fashion the way that they have conjured up in their minds. 
So Jesus tells them this parable. It's a parable to show more accurately who he is. It's a parable to show them that his work's not quite completed. It's a parable to show that he is the king who will go away, but will one day come back. He tells them this parable. You know that a parable is a story that's thrown alongside real life. Many times, Jesus would frame his parables in a slice of everyday life. He would say, uh, a farmer was about to go and sow seed. A, a woman misplaced a coin. Or a man was on his way to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers. Just an everyday slice of life that was used to contextualize and, and put a framework around his stories. But in this story, Jesus doesn't necessarily use a slice from everyday life. He lifts a page out of Jewish history. The story, it seems easy enough to follow, doesn't it? There was a man of noble birth. He was going to be appointed as king. In the first century, to be appointed as king, you had to go to a place like Rome, uh, gain an audience with Caesar, and Caesar would give you the right to rule a general area. And Jesus said in his story that before this noble man who was about to be appointed as king, before he went to, say, a place like Rome, he called ten of his servants together. He gave each one a mina. A mina is a, a form of currency. He said, put this money to work until I come back. The implication is it'll take a little while for him to go and come back because travel in the first century is rather slow. But undoubtedly, he will come back. He's certain to come back. For reasons that we're not told, there were some subjects in that region who did not want this man to be their king. And so there was a, a protest and a delegation was sent uh, to gain audience with Caesar and to demand, we do not want this man to be our king. But in the story of Jesus, uh, Caesar does not allow this protest to go on he does name that man as king and when the king comes back he settles accounts with everyone all of his servants all of his citizens that's pretty much the story now that story sounds very familiar it sounds a lot like what happened after Herod the Great died in 4 BC when Herod the Great died in 4 BC, he had three sons, and according to his will, he wanted his three sons to rule his areas. There was one son that was named Archelaus, and Archelaus was in line to rule Judea, which Judea was the place where Jericho and Jerusalem reside. Archelaus was a bad guy. He was a pathetic ruler. And in fact, there was a revolt against Archelaus. There was a protest and a delegation of some people from Jericho actually went to Caesar in Rome and they said, we do not want this man to be our king. But Caesar did not listen to them and Archelaus became the king of that region. And don't you know that he heard about this? So when he came back, he settled the accounts with all the people living in Jericho and the surrounding area. This is a story that everybody in that frenzied crowd would have understood. And so Jesus frames his story, frames his parable in this historical event. Now, why does he do this? Certainly, he is not comparing himself with Archelaus. What he is doing is he's communicating that he is the king of all kings. 
and that he certainly will go away to a far country and he will be gone for quite a long time, but he will return. And Jesus is saying, when I return, I will settle the accounts with everyone living within my jurisdiction. You can bet your bottom dollar, Jesus says, I am the king who will go away and I will come back in mighty force. And what Jesus is telling disciples of the first century is the same thing he's telling disciples of the 21st century. Until I come back, this is how I want you to live. Jesus tells a little dandy story. It's a wonderful parable. There's a certain man who was born of noble birth. He was to be appointed king. He called ten of his servants. Before he left for the trip, he gave each of them a mina. Now, when you hear the story, you may think to yourself, oh, wait, that, that even sounds familiar in other places in the gospel. There is another story. It's tucked away in Matthew chapter 25. And you may think to yourself, well, this is that story. In Matthew 25, it's the parable of the talents. Here in Luke 19, it's the parable of the minas. And you think to yourself, a talent, a mina, a mina, a talent. What's the difference? And I do think there are some similarities in the stories. There's also enough differences for us to conclude these are two separate stories and we should not compress them into one event. Let me give you a few of the differences. In Matthew 25, it is a businessman, not a noble king. This businessman gathers only three of his servants and he gives them talents. A talent's not an ability, it's the largest sum of money in the first century. To the first servant, he gives five talents. To the second servant, he gives two talents. To the third servant, he gives one talent. In our story of Luke 19, it's a, it's a noble man, not a businessman, and he goes to be appointed as king. And he calls ten of his servants together, not three, ten, calls ten of them together, gives each of them the very same thing, a mina. A mina would have been equivalent to a um, hundred denarii. A denarius was an honest day's wage for an honest day's work. So in our story, the would-be king gives three months of wages to all of his servants. That's not a significant amount of money. It's not something to sneeze at, but it's not an enormous amount of money. In the story of Matthew 25, a talent is equal to 60 minas or 6,000 days of work. It takes you approximately 20 years to earn 6,000 days of work. So one talent is equal to 20 years of wages. And in Matthew 25, this enormous story, this enormous extravagance, the, the, the master gives five talents, two talents, one talent. That's 100 years of wages. That's 40 years of wages. That's 20 years of wages. That's an enormous amount of money. That's a significant gift, isn't it? That's like retirement early kind of gift. That's like retirement at the beach and at the mountain and out west kind of gift. I mean, if you got 100 years worth of wages or 40 years worth of wages or even 20 years worth of wages, you're going to retire early, say bye-bye, and you're going to be off and enjoy life, right? In Matthew 25, it's an enormous amount of money. In Luke 19, Jesus describes a more meager amount of money and it's the same amount of money that's given to each of the servants in Matthew it's different amounts given to different people in our story same amount given to the same 
individuals, one mina each. Here's another difference. The story of Matthew 25 is spoken by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, in the Passion Week of his life. Here, our story of Luke 19 is actually told before Jesus even gets to Jerusalem. He's on his way, he's close there, but he's still on the outskirts. It's told at a different time. You say, preacher, what's your point? Uh, what, 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 what do you mean by this? What, what does all this prove? Well, I, I think that it proves that Jesus is not the only preacher who makes up a bunch of stories. And that Jesus makes up a bunch of stories, and, and sometimes some of his details of this story may sound a lot like some of the details of that story, even though they're two separate stories. I don't know about you, but that sure makes me feel a whole lot better. I think Jesus is just telling another story. And clearly, he wants to communicate that he is the sovereign king, and he wants us to know he's going away, he is going to come back, but he wants us to do something with what he has given us. This is a story about the sovereignty of God in Christ. Jesus is the king of all kings. He calls ten of his servants. That word servant means doulos. It's, it's a common everyday worker. A doulos cannot reinvent, reject, or reinterpret the commands of the king. The servant is there to obey the king. The, the, the issue that comes from the king is, is not a suggestion for you to consider. It's a command for the servant's to faithfully obey. This is a command from the king. Here is something that I give to all of you. Put it to work until I come back. In this story, Jesus communicates that he is sovereign. We use that word a lot in the church, but what does it mean? We've spoken it before. We speak about sovereignty as saying who's in charge, that, that God is in control of all things that nothing happens outside of the permission of God, and that whatever God permits, he promotes for his good and for his glory, and certainly all that is accurate, true, and right. But in this story, there's something even deeper. To say that Jesus is king, to say that he is sovereign, is to say that he owns you, and he owns me. Let me ask you this. Who in this story is outside the jurisdiction of the king? The answer no one. Everybody is under the jurisdiction of the king. In this story, there are three types of people. This is where you're going to show up. Uh, there's the faithful servant. There's the phony servant. There are the foes. And whether you're a faithful servant or phony servant or a foe, all are under the jurisdiction and the authority of the king of all kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. For even when the king comes back, he calls the foes together. Those who say, we don't want this man to be our king. He calls them and he gives the order to execute them. And he as the king has every right to do that. He's not doing anything unjust. He's not doing anything unethical. He's not doing anything that somebody's going to slap his hand for. He's doing everything within his prerogative. Why? Because he is sovereign king. And as sovereign king, he owns you and he owns me and he owns everything, seen and unseen, visible and invisible, because he is king. There are millions of people, even to this day, who say, we don't want him to be my king. 
There are millions of people even this day who say, I reject Jesus. And they think that by their rejection, they are saying he no longer has any authority over my life. Nothing could be further from the truth. Whether you receive him or reject him, he's still king. Whether you embrace him or you turn him away, he's still sovereign. Jesus tells this story to tell all of his frenzied fans that are following him as if he's a rock star. He says, listen, I want you to know that I am the sovereign king and I have authority over all three groups, over the faithful servant, over the phony servant, and even over the foes. He is sovereign. He's still sovereign. It's not just saying that he calls the shots. It's not just saying that he's in control. Not just saying he's in charge. But I'm making a bold statement today. I am saying that he owns everyone in his kingdom. And his kingdom is the entire world. He is the king of the cosmos. In our story, Jesus says that the king, the one of noble birth who was appointed as king, he calls all of his servants, ten of his servants together. He gives them a mina. Each, off he goes for quite some time, and eventually he comes back. Because even though the haters, even though the foes did not want him to be king, he was still declared king. So he came back. He wanted to settle the accounts. He calls in the first two servants. They are the faithful servants. The first servant comes in. He says, sir, here is your mina. It has earned 10 more. Friends, that's a 1,000% profit. Anybody want a 1,000% profit? Praise the Lord. I also note how humble this first servant is. He didn't strut, swag himself into the presence of the king and say, hey, look what I've done. I just created... Ten minas out of the one measly mina that you left me. No, he doesn't come in arrogant. He comes in humble. This is your mina. This is your profit. This is your increase. These ten don't belong to me. They belong to you. And the king responds with praise and promotion. Well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a small matter, that faithfulness will translate into great reward and authority. You're going to be in charge of 10 cities. Wow, are you serious? Just because he was faithful over three months of wages, now he is going to be in charge of 10 cities. The second faithful servant walks in. In a very same humble way, sir, here is your mina. It's produced five more. Once again, the king responds with the same level of praise and promotion. Well done. You're in charge of five cities. He's not disappointed in the second servant because the second servant only produced a 500% increase instead of a 1,000% increase. The king does not hold all of his servants to the same level of results, but he does demand of all of his servants the same level of obedience. You've got to be faithful with what you've been given. You've got to be faithful with what the king has entrusted into your care. And as long as you are faithful with that, it will produce a bountiful blessing. 
Whether it's 500%, whether it's 1,000%, that doesn't matter. The king responds to both servants because they're faithful unto him. Well done. Add a boy, that a girl, way to go. I'm gonna bless your obedience. You're now in charge of something far greater because of your faithfulness in the small things. Then the scripture says, another servant came in. Not even the title of a third servant, but another servant. The Greek word that's an other is another of another kind. He's nothing like the previous two servants. He's another kind of servant. Jesus will call him a wicked servant. He struts in. He's got the mina in hand. He throws it on the table and says, there is your mina. I put it in a cloth, in a handkerchief. I carelessly packed it away. I didn't even have enough regard to bury it in the ground. I just wrapped it loosely, carelessly, in a cloth. Because I knew that you were a hard man, a severe man, a cutthroat negotiator, a strict administrator. I knew you were a hard man. And I know that you are a liar and a thief. Because, king, you take from that which you did not put in. And you reap where you did not sow. I knew that if I worked hard for you, this would not be mine. I'd have to give it to you. And if I didn't give it to you willingly, you'd come in and take it from me. So, king, I'm afraid of you. Here is your mina. Let me ask you a quick question. Does he sound very afraid of the king? Not really. The king says, I will judge you by your own words. I'm a hard man, Emma. I'm a, I'm a liar. I'm a thief, Emma. I take what I ought not take. I, I reap where I did not sow that. That's what you think of me? If you think that I'm such a hard, severe, critical negotiator... If you really thought that, then you would have at least put your money on deposit at the bank. It could have at least earned interest without you lifting a finger, and you could have at least showed up to give me my mina plus the interest. The king says, I see right through you. See, I, I don't think that you really care. I don't think that you really are that afraid of me. Because if you were, at the very least, you would do everything possible to appease me. My friend, let me ask you, what do you think is the penalty for slandering the king in the first century? What is the penalty for lying to the king in the first century? The penalty is death. This man is a wicked servant. He is an arrogant servant. He is, I call, a phony servant. His name is on the membership roll, but he doesn't know the master. He knows and he's in the house of the king, but he doesn't know the king of the house. His absence of any effort reveals a lack of any genuine relationship. He knows the master from a distance. He knows the would-be king just by name only, but he doesn't really know him. Because if he knew him, he would love him. We're not given any indication in this story from Jesus that somehow the would-be king is anything less than gracious and benevolent. This other servant is just slandering the king. He's lying about him in the presence of others and 
the king himself. If I were to ask you, are you a faithful servant or a phony servant, what would you say? I'll tell you what you would say. You would say, well, I'm a faithful servant. Not as faithful as I ought to be, but I want to be faithful unto the Lord. If I were to do a show of hands, how many phony servants are in the house today? There'd be about this many hands to go up. Nobody would raise their hand. If I would say, how many faithful servants are in the house today? How many hands would go up? Most, if not all of us, would raise their hand. Yeah, I'm a faithful servant. I'm not phony. And then I realize it, it matters little what we regard of ourselves. What matters most is how God regards us. Does God see us as faithful? Or does God see us as phony? It seems to me that what we do with what God has entrusted to us reveals our faithfulness or our phoniness. I want to be very clear today. I am not saying that somehow you are saved by your works, but what I am saying is that you're saved to do good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. What is the mina? I know we could debate this, but let's just suffice it to say this. What has God entrusted to all of his servants? The gospel. The gospel has been entrusted to us. What are we charged to do with the gospel? We're charged to work the gospel, do the work of the gospel. We are to uh, invest the gospel in the currency of the kingdom of God. What is the highest form of currency? People. People. That's what matters most to God. So when you take this story, what is Jesus, the sovereign king, saying? Until I get back, I want you to invest the gospel into other people. I want you to take what I've given to you, the good news of the gospel, and I want you to give it unto others. I want you to share it with others. I want you to build a profit. I want you to turn a 500%, 1,000% profit. I want you to be intentional in how you live your life so that when I come back, you can show me what the gospel has done, not only to you, but also through you in a lost humanity of the world. I think that's what Jesus is, is, is driving at. Jesus wants us to use the gospel which he has given unto us and invest it into other people. This is a great moment for us to remind ourselves of the three questions that we have always been reminding ourselves all year long. The questions of what, where, and who. Since you are a disciple of Christ and since a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Jesus, what are you learning what are you learning about God? What are you learning about yourself? What are you learning about your calling? What are you learning as you peer into the page of the mirror called the Bible? What are you learning? Where? Where are you going? Since a disciple takes the gospel here, there, and everywhere, across the street and across the globe, where are you going with the gospel? You can go to Africa, you can go to Peru, you can go to California, you can go to Canada, you can stay right here in Shelby County, you can go to La Follette, Tennessee, but where are you going with the gospel? And the third question of who, who are you trying to reach? And if some specific person doesn't come to your mind in less than three seconds, then my brother or sister, you're not being intentional enough. So who are you trying to reach? What are you learning? Where are you going? Who are you trying to reach? The faithful servant of God takes those questions seriously. 
The phony servant of God allows those questions to go in one ear and out the other, takes the gospel which has been entrusted to them, wraps it up, puts it on a shelf, and says, I'll only reach for it when I need it. And I'll live life, business as usual. I tell the staff all the time, work as if it all depends on you, knowing full well that it all depends on God. You do your ministry, you do your work as if it all depends on you, knowing full well it all depends on God. Because at the end of the day, the best we can say is this. As we approach the King of all kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, Sir, here is your gospel. And this is what your gospel has done to me, and this is what your gospel has done through me, to your name be the glory. Here is your gospel. Jesus says to the other bystanders, probably the other seven, he doesn't want to elongate the story, so he just gives you three examples because all ten of them fall in one of two categories, either faithful or phony. So he says probably to the other seven, I want you to strip that mino away from that phony, wicked servant, and I want you to give it to the one who has ten minos. And the bystanders, they look and they say, Sir, are you serious? He already has ten. You know what that's called? That's called grace. Where the king gives something to someone else and they don't, that's called grace. When you're a recipient of grace, what do you say? It's amazing, it's majestic, it's magnificent. When you see grace displayed on somebody else, what do you say? That's outrageous, that's preposterous, that's a waste. Because there is something scandalous about grace, isn't there? There's something very scandalous about grace. The blessing you've received in your life is not because you've earned it. It's not because you deserve it. The truth of the matter is you deserve the opposite of the grace of God. You don't want God to be fair with you because a fair God would send all of us to hell because of our disobedience and because of our sin. That's what a fair God would do. We want a gracious God. And when we receive it, we say, oh, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Can I get an amen? amen. Right? I mean, but when we see it displayed on somebody else, we say like the bystanders, what are you doing? He's already been blessed a lot. She already has 10 minus. Not too many weeks ago, I came across an understanding of grace that I never really thought about before. And this is what I learned. That grace means that he didn't have to do it, but he did. That's grace. He didn't have to do it, but he did. God made the heavens out of nothing, made the earth just by speaking it into existence, flung the stars into space, put the planets in orbit. He didn't have to do it, but he did. God sent his son, Jesus the Christ, and Jesus bore my sin and your sin. He died on our cross. He was placed in our grave. He who knew no sin became sin for us. The righteous one was declared unrighteous so that we who are unrighteous might be declared righteous. He didn't have to do it, but he did. And on the third day, Jesus burst forth from the tomb with all power, healing, and victory in his hands. He's ascended to the heavens with a promise he's going to come back and rescue his church. He didn't have to do it, 
but he did. At the age of seven, God saved my sin-sick soul. And he called me to preach at the age of 17. And this morning, he woke me up and told me to go to church because I got something to say to you and to say through you. My friends, he didn't have to do it, but he did. I'm about to get happy right now. There's somebody in the house today who should be dead. The doctor said, you've got no chance of survival. Yet, you're still here today. He didn't have to do it, but he did. Somebody's got a prodigal son. Somebody's got a prodigal granddaughter. And they were in the far country, wasting wealth. Yet, God showed up, and he brought them home. He didn't have to do it, but he did. And somebody here got a promotion. You weren't looking for it. You don't deserve it. But God showed up and did it for you. He didn't have to do it. But he did. Somebody's here today, and your marriage was on the rocks. Yet Jesus reached in, pulled you up, put your feet firmly planted on the rock of Jesus Christ. He didn't have to do it, but he did. Somebody's here today, and your worries that keep you up at night have now been wiped away. He didn't have to do it, but he did. That's grace. Our sovereign king. Our sovereign king is gracious. He didn't have to do it, but he did. Why did he take the mine away and give it to the one who had 10? Because he could trust the one who had 10. You want more truth? Apply the truth you already know in your life. He'll give you more. You want more opportunities? Take advantage of sharing the gospel with the opportunities that you have. He'll give you more. You want more blessings? Use your blessings to advance his kingdom, not your own agenda. He'll give you more blessings. He gave it to the one who had 10 because he could trust the one who had 10. He said, take from the one who has nothing, I'll take even what he thinks he has. This morning I wonder, where are you in this story? Are you faithful, a phony, or a foe? Which one are you? If you're faithful unto the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. Keep up the good work until Jesus calls you home. Keep it up. If you're phony, repent. The gospel was not given to you to be stored. It was given to you to be shared. Are you a foe? You've rejected Jesus. You say he's not legitimate. He's not real. He's not your king. My friend, he's still king. Did you see what he does with the foes? He calls them all together. And he kills them. Because he has the right to do it. If you're rejecting Jesus today, I encourage you to receive him as Savior and Lord. I've got to sit down. But before I do, can I just remind you that the King is coming. One day the trumpet will sound because the King is coming. One day the dead in Christ will be raised because the King is coming. One day the eastern sky will be split because the king is coming. One day Jesus will set up his millennial kingdom here on earth because the king is coming. One day he will thoroughly annihilate the devil and all of his adversaries and he will condemn all of his foes because the king is coming. One day he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. He will establish his kingdom both now and forevermore. And this king will rule forever and ever and ever because the king is coming. I know it's been 2,000 years but the king is coming. I know that millions think he's not coming but I came this morning to tell you that the king is coming. I 
I know it's been a mighty long time. I know there's been a delay. But one day, the king is coming. And when he comes, let him look at you and look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servants. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we give this invitation. By your word, by your spirit, will you speak to us? For we long to be faithful servants of Christ. If there's any phony one in the house, may he or she repent. If there's anyone who is a foe of Christ coming here because somebody dragged them kicking and screaming, Lord, today I pray that they will receive you as Jesus the Lord, the Christ the Messiah. Have your way in this invitation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.